Thanks for listening. The following is an audio presentation from High Country Christian Church. For more information, please visit www.highcountrychristian.com. So we're going to continue, or I should say we're going to conclude in this awesome summer series on the book of Philippians. And um, I want to encourage those who are watching, particularly those who are watching via Facebook this morning, um, if, you, if you're getting blessed by this, I want to encourage you to share the broadcast with uh, your friends and family who are connected to you, because we believe everybody needs to get the Word of God in their hearts, especially on a Sunday morning. It's just a good time to get into the Bible. Amen? Um, quick review of what we covered. Last week, we talked about the first half of chapter 4, which is the final chapter in this book. And today we're going to cover from verses 10 through verse 23. We talked about verse 1 to verse 9 last week, and today we'll jump into verse 10 down through verse 23. And a quick review of what we talked about from the first half of the chapter. We said that Paul exhorts us at the beginning of chapter 4 to live in unity with one another and to partner with each other in the purpose and for the work of the ministry. And I said to you, you know, it's, it's very important, and, and sometimes, sometimes we unintentionally do this in churches where we, where we center everything on the church and the responsibility of the church, and we, unwill, or we uh, unintentionally remove opportunities for the people in the church to actually do the serving and the ministry. You know, we say, we unintentionally say things like, oh, it's the church's job to get my cousin saved. Well, Maybe it's your job to get your cousin saved. Yeah? Maybe you have the spiritual equipment that it takes to actually be a blessing in the community. And so we said that sometimes that happens. We get so good at organizing our ministries that we forget to empower the people to actually go out and use the gifts and the callings God's put in your life to make a change in the world. Amen? So uh, Paul encourages us to partner with one another. You remember he said, partner with uh, Euodia and Syntyche. I made jokes about uh, we were going to name our daughter Claire Euodia, but then we changed our mind and named her Claire instead. Um, and uh, and he, he mentions Clement, who's another brother that was there. And he said, y'all get together and partner with these people in the work of the ministry. And I think that is such an important thing for us to remember today. Then we moved on down through verses 4, 5, and we got into 6 and 7. Verse 4, he talks about us rejoicing in the Lord. He says, rejoice in the Lord, and again I say, rejoice in the Lord. So many people miss out on a life of joy because they don't really understand the concept of rejoicing. We said that the thing that makes rejoicing rejoicing is that the action of joy has to come before the feeling of joy ever does. You remember the quote that I read you from Bill Johnson? He said, in the world we rejoice because we have joy. In the kingdom we have joy because we rejoice. Amen. We kickstart the process by faith oftentimes that I don't feel any sense of joy. I don't feel that there's any reason for me to have joy, but I rejoice anyways. I do it on credit. Amen. You remember I joked about praising God on credit. Amen. <laughs> Praise the Lord. And then we finished by talking about mental health and we talked about breaking through and beyond the label that the world often puts on us. We talked and I, and I don't, I wish I had time to 
to talk about it and to remind us about it, but then I would end up re-preaching that, and I don't want to do that. So um, we, we concluded by talking at length about mental health. Paul teaches us how to not be anxious. He teaches us how to live above and beyond the limitations that are set on us mentally and spiritually. And so you want to go check that out on the podcast if you didn't get to hear it, because I think it was uh, truly helpful. It really was a blessing. Um, so now let's jump into Philippians 10. That's, all, that's enough review. Philippians chapter 4, rather, verse 10. Verse 10 reads, and I'm reading from the New King James Version. You can follow along in your Bible or on screen. But I rejoiced in the Lord greatly, that now at last your care for me has flourished again. Though you surely did care, but you lacked opportunity. Not that I speak in regard to need, for I have learned in whatever state that I am to be content. I know how to be abased, I know how to abound. Everywhere and in all things I have learned both to be full and to be hungry, both to abound and to suffer need. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. Nevertheless, you have done well that you shared in my distress. Now, you Philippians know also that in the beginning of the gospel, when I departed from Macedonia, no church shared with me concerning giving and receiving, but you only. I think it's one of the saddest verses in the Bible. He says, nobody shared with me in the gospel except for you. Verse 16, for even in Thessalonica, you sent aid once and again for my necessities. Not that I seek the gift, but I seek the fruit that abounds to your account. Indeed, I have all and abound. I am full, having received from Epaphroditus the things sent from you, a sweet-smelling aroma, an acceptable sacrifice, well-pleasing to God. And my God shall supply all of your need according to his riches in glory by Christ Jesus. Now to our God and Father be glory forever and ever. Amen. Greet every saint in Christ Jesus. The brethren who are with me greet you. All the saints greet you, but especially those who are of Caesar's household. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you all. Amen. And so he concludes this amazing book called Philippians. I think it's super cool, before we jump into the, go back to verse 10, I just think it's super cool, one of the details that sticks out is this idea that there was believers in Caesar's house. Um, because if you, if you know anything about the Roman Empire and the Caesars and the government that was in place at that time, it was so violently opposed to Christianity because at the time of the early church, Christianity grew so fast the message of Jesus spread out so quickly and changed so many people's lives that Rome actually viewed it as a threat to the establishment of their empire. So that's why, that's why they killed Christians. 
Uh, it wasn't, it, yes, they disagreed with the message of Jesus, but what was more so is that they were threatened by all the, the churches that were popping up everywhere and all the people that were getting saved. And I just think it's so cool that even amidst a government that was completely hostile to the name of Jesus, Paul says there's a bunch of believers here in Caesar's house and they greet you as well. Isn't that cool? Isn't that cool that even in the midst of hostility, the gospel still thrives every single time? It's like a flower that you see break up through concrete. Do you ever see, do you ever see a, a dandelion that pushed its way up through a crack in the concrete? Listen, you cannot keep the gospel of Jesus enclosed or encased or bound or restricted in any way. Amen. The more you try to stop us, the more we multiply. Glory to God. Amen. Hallelujah. I just think that's cool. One of those fun things that you, you read those kind of verses in passing, and then you go back and look at them again, you would say, wait a minute, there's, there was something cool in that verse. So there was a bunch of believers at Caesar's house, amen? So let's talk about the remainder of this chapter in the next 30 minutes, and we'll, talk, we'll make a few comments here, and I believe this will be a blessing to you. I think it's interesting that Paul takes this opportunity as he's closing out his letter to remind the Philippians of what I think to him was one of the most important elements of what he was writing. You know, when you, oftentimes when you leave or when you sign off something, you save your most important bits for the last, for the end, right? I have children, and when I'm leaving the house, if I have something that I want them to remember, I say it right before I leave, right? Don't forget. Clean your room. Don't forget. Walk the dog. Don't forget. Don't pull your sister's hair. Whatever. Okay? If I'm saying something I really want to drive home, I leave it for the end. And I believe this is what Paul is doing here. He's driving home. This is his fatherly heart. This is Paul's desire and his heart for these wonderful people that he has identified as his tribe. The Philippians, these are Paul's people. Man, this is his tribe. This is his group. He loves them. He fathered them. He believes in them. And now as he's signing off, he's reminding them of something. He's reminding them of the faithfulness of God in the way that God provides for his people. The whole second half of this chapter is all about the provision of God. You can't take anything else out of this chapter, out of the second half of this chapter, except God's provision. If you're doing this scripturally, if we're looking through here and we're accurately assessing what Paul has written, it is all about God providing for you and for me because we're his people. Amen? If you ever wonder whether or not God will sustain you, go read Philippians chapter 4. And read the whole thing. If you've ever wondered, God, where are you in the middle of a challenge that I'm facing? Where are you when I feel like I'm at, down to my last dollar? Where are you when I feel like I'm down to the end of my rope? You can always go back and be reminded that God said through the Apostle Paul, he would take care of all of our needs according to his riches and glory. Amen? This is such an amazing reminder, and I think it's no mistake that Paul saves this for the very end. This is his fatherly exhortation to them, and it's an appropriate way for him to close out his letter to remind them how much God loves them as a father and promises to take care of them. Isn't that awesome? Now, Paul, verse 10 here, Paul is expressing his thanks to them for their continued willingness to give and to support him. 
He says, I rejoice in the Lord greatly that now at last again your care for me has flourished. And he, and he does something that I think is wonderful and it's actually really great leadership. He addresses their desire even when there was a lack of opportunity. And I think this is such an important thing for leaders to do. If you lead anything, always be sure to address the, the, the desire that you see in people. It goes a lot farther than we think. Paul says, you know, you didn't have the opportunity to give to me the way you wanted to, but I still recognize your desire to do it. That's really important to do as a leader. It's really important for us that are in leadership positions to see the, the desire and the intention in people. Because see, oftentimes what we do is we judge people based on their actions and we make no indication of any kind of care for their intentions. Somebody makes a mistake and we rail them, but then they do something good that they intended to do and we don't notice. We don't take, we don't take notice. And that's really not a good thing. We judge other people by their actions. We judge ourselves by our intentions all the time. Well, well, I screwed up, but I didn't mean to, so I'm good. But see, as leaders, we have to be able to look past just what people do, and we have to be able to look into their heart and recognize that they have good intentions. And that's what Paul is doing here. He says, you know what? Even though you didn't have the opportunity to give, I still recognize that you wanted to. You... <laughs> Don't think that doesn't go a long way with the people you lead. And don't think that doesn't go a long way uh, with the people that you, th that you think of as your children, your spiritual children or your natural children. So then he keeps going. Y'all doing okay this morning? He goes to verse 11. And he says, not that I was speaking in regarding to need, because I've learned in whatever state I am in to be content. Now, I want to focus on this word content because that's the one that jumps off the page to me when I read it. And when I did, when I looked it up in the Greek, I found some interesting things. I'm not going to attempt to, to pronounce the word, um, but it means independent of external circumstances. Independent of external circumstances. I don't know if that hits you the way it hits me but it makes me realize God's desire for us. He says, let me read it to you again, not, that I, not that, in that I speak to you in regards of need, for I have learned in whatever state I am in to be independent of external circumstances. Isn't that awesome? I have learned no matter where I find myself, no matter what situation I find myself to be in, I have learned how to maintain my relationship with God completely independent of the external circumstances. Why on earth is that important? It's important because you and I, if we're not careful, live totally in response to external circumstances instead of independent of external circumstances. You see, what I think the concept that I think Paul is giving us here is that it's possible for us to live with such a connection to God that we take our cues from heaven instead of our cues from the world around us. That we get to the place of being so fortified internally that literally hell and high water can rise up around us and our peace doesn't move. Our peace doesn't change. I'm still just as content and as happy as I was before the storm. And now I'm in the storm and I 
still just as happy as I was before the storm. I've learned that no matter what situation I'm in, Paul is saying, I've learned how to be independent of that situation. And here's why I think that's super important. It's because when we get to that place of being independent of the external is when we actually start to make wise decisions. You see, if I only ever make my decisions based on the feedback that I get externally from the world around me, I'll make bad decisions a lot because I'm doing it in my own strength. I'm doing it based on what my eyes can see or what my ears can hear. I'm doing it just on only my feelings, only the information that I can gather around me. Now, there's nothing wrong with that. You should be wise and gather information. But at the end of the day, my marching orders have to come from God, not from my external circumstance. Amen. Isn't this cool? He says, I've learned no matter what state I am in to be independent of external circumstances. Now, when we understand this, when we understand that that's what the word content means here, it sets us up to really understand the rest of the chapter. It's, I mean, isn't it funny how context works? (laughs) It's like you get the context and, oh, hey, this all makes sense. It's all super consistent with the rest of the Bible. It's consistent with everything Paul teaches us. It's consistent with the words of Jesus. You can go read Matthew chapter 6, and it's a perfect parallel to Philippians chapter 4. I don't know if, you've, if you remember when I say Matthew chapter 6, that's where Jesus is talking about. Don't think about what you're going to wear. Don't think about what you're going to eat. Don't get worried and frustrated about all the external things of life. He says, don't you think your heavenly father knows you have need of clothing and food and raiment, which is the old King James. Nobody says raiment anymore. Uh, And he says, "Don't, don't you think your heavenly father knows? He says, if God so clothes the fields of the lilies, which are here today and tossed into the furnace tomorrow, don't you think he will clothe you? He says, even these, these lilies, even Solomon in all of his splendor was not arrayed as one of these. The greatest king to ever live in the history of the human race wasn't as beautifully taken care of as a flower. As a flower outgrowing in a field that somebody's going to mow over or step on by accident or throw it into an oven or, you know. God's saying this. He says, if he can take care of weeds, don't you think he can take care of you? Amen. Because, like, it's got to be weeds, right? Because the pretty flowers are the ones we cut and keep. But he says, if these are the flowers that are cut down and thrown into an oven, clearly that's not a desirable keeper flower, right? These are weeds. He says, if God can take care of weeds, he can take care of you, man. Amen. Well, this, this, this thing in Matthew 6 parallels so perfectly what Paul says here. Philippians 4. And if we understand that word content, it will set us up to really grab everything God has in the rest of this chapter. So he goes on to say, I've learned in whatever state that I am in to be independent of external circumstances. Verse 12, I know how to be abased. I know how to abound. You know, when I read that word abased, I read it by accident as abused because it's, it's only one letter off. I glanced over, I was reading, I was like, wait, I don't remember Paul saying he knows how to be abused. That's, that's not right. Time out. And I had to go back and look. Okay, abased. All right, I get it. 
I know how to be, listen, if I can put it in, in terms that we can all understand, I know how to be when the tax refund check clears, and I know how to be when I don't know where my next meal is going to come from, okay? And notice what he says here. He says, I know how to be abased. I know how to abound. How do you do it, Paul? How do you bounce back? from negative situations. How do you bounce back when you got, don't have two nickels to rub together? I was just talking this week with a friend, and they were asking, we were talking about when my, when my grandparents came from Italy to this country. And something my grandmother told us all the time when we were kids, I came to this country with a suitcase and $5. And I thought, boy, that's pretty amazing. Got here in 1951, went through Ellis Island and all of that, and uh, came to New York State and had $5 and a suitcase. How do you bounce back from $5 and a suitcase? How do you, how do you go from being abased to abounding? He says, everywhere and in all things, I have learned both to be full and to be hungry, both to abound and to suffer need. I can do all things through Christ Jesus. This is the verse that everybody, you know, puts on their uh, sweatband when they when their team when they want their team to win the playoffs, right? When we're going to the Super Bowl, praise God, I can do all things through Christ. And you know what? It works in that context, too. It works. Paul is teaching us that no matter where we find ourselves, the answer on how to go through difficulty is to find your strength in Christ. Amen. Glory to God. He says the answer to living life, no matter what season of life you find yourself in, is to tuck into Jesus, to, to, to you know, get secure in Christ. Isn't that awesome? He's not saying, listen, it's obvious that he would rather have abundance, not suffer need. I don't believe that Paul is giving us doctrine on finances here in this verse. I really don't. I believe that he's saying there's going to be times in your life and seasons when you have plenty, and there's going to be times and seasons in your life when you're going to need to figure out how to make it. And in both of those situations, do you know what you need to do? You need to rely on Jesus. Amen. Notice verse 13, Jesus is the source of Paul's confidence. Jesus is the one who gives Paul everything that he needs to be independent of every external circumstance. Think about how this connects to when Jesus was alive on the earth, teaching and preaching. You remember when Peter walked on the water? They're, you know, the disciples are in the boat and it's crazy and it's chaos and the storm and the waves and they're all freaking out. And they, Peter looks out and they, they get scared because they see somebody walking on the water. They think it's a ghost. And they're like, who are you? And Jesus says, guys, it's me. Don't be afraid. And then Peter gets real brilliant and says, Lord, if it's you, tell me to come out on the water. That's like the equivalent. I love making fun of Peter. I don't know why. I, 
That's like the equivalent of somebody calling you up on the phone, or you get, you know what it is? You get one of those emails that's, you know, from the from Prince Whoever, from the deposed print king of Nigeria, and he's got $20 million and he needs a, an account in America to sink it into, and, and he's gonna help you. And, and that's like you responding to that email saying, if this is really the king of the of Nigeria, um, can you tell me what your name is and can you tell me blah blah blah? Well, that's what Peter did to Jesus. He says, if this is really you, tell me to come out on the water. Jesus says, it's me. Come on. And what happened? What happened? Peter actually walked on the water. Peter actually walked on the water. I love to pick on Peter because he's an easy target, but he did something I didn't do, which is he actually walked on water. He got out of the boat and walked on water. And watch what happened. As long as Jesus was in his field of view, he did the impossible. Only when he became dependent on external circumstances is when he started to sink. Why does Paul say, I've learned in all things to be content? What does it mean to be content? To be independent of the external circumstance? Why is that so important? It's found in the in evidence of Peter walking on water. As long as I have my eyes on Jesus, I can do all things through Christ who gives me strength. The minute I take my eyes off Jesus, I can't do anything. Come on, come on. The moment I take my eyes off Jesus is when I lose my ability to be in any situation. The point is that victory is always the outcome for the person who has their eyes on Christ. Paul's not saying I've learned to be happy and wealthy and I've learned to be rich or I've learned to be poor too and I've learned to be depressed. He said no matter what situation I find myself in, I've learned how to keep my eyes on Jesus so that I come out victorious in every single time. You see the difference? When I take my eyes off him, I can't do anything. When I keep my eyes on him, I can do anything. Right. Amen. And you can win the playoffs too. I mean, it works. It works in every situation. I used to, when I was a kid, I used to get picked on a lot in school because I was smaller. I was a shrimpy kid. I know it's hard to believe, but I was a shrimpy little kid. And I used to get picked on a lot. And my, my mom would tell me this scripture all the time. Honey, don't forget about Philippians 4.16. You can do all things through Christ. Mom, I can't do it. They're picking on me. They're making fun of me. I'd come home crying. Again, I know you can't imagine that that's true, but I would come home all so upset and crying and frustrated. Mom would say, don't forget the Bible. It says you can do all things through Christ. And that, that gave me courage. Amen. As long as I keep my eyes on Jesus, I can do anything. Now, let's keep going. Verse 15 or verse 14, excuse me. Nevertheless, you've done well that you shared in my distress. Now you Philippians know also that in the beginning of the gospel, when I departed from Macedonia, no church shared with me concerning giving and receiving, but you only. I, there's a, the phrase that sticks out to me in this verse that makes me shake my head is when Paul says, the beginning of the gospel. If you read it and you just glance at it, it would be easy to assume Paul is a narcissist. Because the gospel, if you read your Bible, didn't start with Paul. So when Paul started preaching, technically wasn't the beginning of the gospel. The beginning of the gospel happened in Acts chapter 2. Technically, the beginning of the gospel began with Jesus, if you really want to get 
technical. But Paul says that the beginning of the gospel was his ministry. And I'm like, Paul, that's pretty arrogant, bro. You got an ego problem. But the more you, the more you sit and think about it and stay with your thoughts for a second and go, well, no, Paul was the... He's the one that told us we're to love each other and not to have pride, and it doesn't line up with Paul's character. So what is he trying to say here? It's good to let the Bible interpret the Bible, let the Bible speak for itself. What is Paul actually saying here? I believe that Paul is taking ownership in the message of the gospel, that to him, the gospel started when he started, because he was so, what, what, I'm, what I'm trying to drive at is he was so committed to the message of the cross, that to him, it was everything to him. That his life didn't even begin until he started preaching. How do I know that that's true? Because he goes back in chapter three, if you go back a few weeks ago, he goes back in chapter three and says, everything I ever did in my life up until the time I met Christ, I counted as loss. See, to Paul, everything starts and falls. Everything rises and falls. Everything starts and ends around the gospel. To him, I believe this is a verse that shows his priority and his absolute lifetime dedication to the gospel of Jesus. As far as he's concerned, the gospel didn't even start until he started preaching it. That was day one. You follow what I'm saying? I don't think he's being arrogant. I think he's showing us how much he loves Jesus and how committed he is to the gospel. Isn't that cool? He takes ownership now, you get down through verse 16. He says, For even in Thessalonica you sent aid once and again for my necessities. Not that I seek the gift, verse 17. Not that I seek the gift, but I seek the fruit that abounds to your account. This verse teaches us two things. It teaches us that when we give a gift, we're planting seed, and there's going to be fruit that comes as a harvest of our seed, Right? When you plant tomato seeds, what do you get? Tomato plants. And what do you get from those tomato plants? More tomatoes. Okay? That's the law of sowing and reaping. That's giving and receiving. Above that, I believe that this verse points out for us the true heart of ministers. The real, the real heart of pastors. Not that I seek the gift, but I seek that the fruit that abounds to your account. I think 99% of ministers genuinely care about the people that are giving to them. I think there's a handful of bad apples out there that are out there trying to get your money. But you know what? I really believe this. I think most of them really just want to love God and love the people that they're called to serve. And they just preach the Bible and say, this is what the Bible says. If we sow, we'll reap. I really think that by and large, most of the preachers aren't trying to get our money. I believe that by and large, most of the preachers out there are trying to help us understand that if we plant seed, fruit will abound. And Paul says, I'm really not looking for a gift from you. What I'm really interested in is that your fruit would abound because I, verse 18, indeed I abound and I have all. Paul has everything he needs. And if you follow history, I don't want to take too much time to say this, but if you follow history, you find that Paul, by the time he got to Rome, was extremely well taken care of and in a very wealthy position. When he left the island of Malta, where they were shipwrecked, 
Paul, while he was on the island of Malta, got the whole island saved, including the priest, or the, excuse me, the king of that island, who so loaded him up. Because remember, their ship was destroyed and they were, they were marooned on this island. History tells us that when Paul arrived in Rome, he, he sailed there with his other companions in an Alexandrian ship, which was the equivalent of a Bentley in that time. Paul arrived with an army of gold and, and blessing because he did the work of the ministry and that island in Malta got so rocked by the power of God that they sent him home blessed. So by the time he gets to Rome and he writes this letter, he's actually writing from a rented house that was big enough for Paul to hold church services in that he bought or that he rented with the money that was given to him. He says, you know what, guys, I don't need your money. I got it all. This king in Malta took great care of me. I abound. What is he trying to get across to them? He's going over and over again as a, as a, as a, a father would. He says, I, ab I abound. What I really want is for you to understand that God will supply all of your needs, that no matter what situation you find yourself in, if you'll keep your eyes on Jesus, you'll be able to go through any and all situations that you will face. He says, I've got everything I need and I'm abounding. Why am I abounding? I'm full because of what I received from Epaphroditus. The things that you sent, a sweet-smelling aroma, an acceptable sacrifice, watch this, well-pleasing to God. You need to understand that when you give, it is well-pleasing to God. Amen. It is well-pleasing to God when you give. And it doesn't matter what you're giving. Could be in the offering like when Sean was up here. Could be of your time. Could be of your, of your other resources. You know, time's the most valuable thing you have. You can get more money. You can't get more time. Amen. It's true. You can't, you, they're not making any more time. Okay? They're just not making it. I was talking about time and my daughter, who knows I love to cook, was like, Daddy, are you talking about like minutes and seconds or time like we put on vegetables. I said, no, 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 not the herb. We're talking about minutes and seconds. She knows I love to cook and they help me cook sometimes. So no, they're not making any more time. Your time is a precious, precious thing. Amen. <laughs> Our time is a precious thing. And when you give, no matter what you're giving, when you do it as unto the Lord, it's pleasing to him. Amen. And now, here we go. Here's the capstone verse. Are you ready? He says, And my God shall supply all of your need according to his riches in glory. My God shall supply in the same way that God supplied for Paul in the previous verses that he described in that same way, in that same fashion, God's saying through Paul, I'm going to take care of your needs too. If I can teach Paul how to, how to abound, if I can teach Paul how to, how to keep living and stay connected when things aren't good, if I can teach Paul how to be fully reliant on me, I can do the same for you. That's what the Spirit of God's saying. I can do the same for you. The word supply is the last thing we'll look at and then we'll close. The word supply here where he says, my God shall supply all of your needs. It means to make full or to fill up. 
to fill to the full, to cause to abound, to furnish, to supply liberally, to fill it to the top so that nothing shall be wanting to fill to the brim. Sounds pretty good, doesn't it? You see, what we do is we ask, we often ask the Lord a question that really isn't a very good question. And thankfully, he doesn't get mad at us for it. God's pretty nice. He's pretty merciful. Amen. But we ask him this question that really is the wrong question. We say, Lord, don't you care? When we're, when we're in the middle of a crazy, how many of you have been in the middle of a crazy situation before? You had some crazy in your life? I have. When we get in the middle of crazy situations, what is the first thing we say to God? Lord, are you there? And then number two, if you're there, do you care about me? Don't you see what I'm going through? Don't you see where I'm at? Lord, hello. And that's really such a lousy question because that's the question that the disciples asked of Jesus when they were all in the boat together. And they woke him up. Remember, they were freaking out. He was sleeping in the boat. They woke him up. Lord, don't you care that we're perishing? And the reason it's a lousy question is because God cares so much about your condition that he left heaven and came and died on a cross for you. It's always a bad idea to ask God if he cares. Amen. It's a bad idea to ask the Lord if he cares. And see... Unfortunately, we do that. We ask him, do you care? Well, see, God's true desire is that he wants to take care and supply for your needs, so much so that there is no room for wanting. There is no room for anything. It's so abundance, abundant, excuse me. Again, he says, the word supply means to fill up to cause to abound, to furnish or supply liberally. God cares so much about you that he wants to supply you with everything to the, to the degree that it's spilling over. Watch this. I, I love this part of the definition. The word supply also means to consummate a number. To consummate a number. What does that mean? Well, let's say that we were all getting ready to count to ten. One, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten. I do this a lot with my three-year-old. She's real excited about counting right now. So let's say that we're, we're going to count to ten. Sophia, okay, Sophia, we're going to count to ten. One, two, three, four. Sometimes she'll stop at six. Five, six, and she'll see a bird or something. She'll get distracted, you know. She'll, just, she'll stop to think or she'll change the subject. Daddy, you know, I want to play with toys. Okay, well, we're counting right now, so... She'll stop at a number like six. But what she didn't do was she didn't consummate the number 10. She didn't get all the way to 10. When it says here that God will supply for our needs, it's, it literally means in the Greek he'll consummate the number. He, if, you, if you need 10, he's not going to stop at five. Come on, come on. This is super good. I want you to get it. If you need 12, he's not going to stop at eight. If what your need is, is represented here, God doesn't give you half and say, that's good enough, get out of my face. He doesn't do that, that's not his character. 
His desire is to supply in full measure with total abundance. So like, like what Sean said, we have enough not just for ourselves, but to give and be a blessing to supply the world around us. You know, there's some people, you are the, the hands and feet of Jesus in their life, that if you don't have what you need to be a blessing to them, they're not going to get it. Amen. Come on. If you, sometimes there's people in our lives that if we don't live at the level that we need to live at, maybe they don't get the blessing that they need from God. Maybe God's trying to use us to bless them. And that's why God never, he always consummates the full number. He never stops halfway. If you need 20 apples, he's not going to give you 18 He's probably going to give you 25 and say, take the five and go find some people that need some more. Amen. That's his character. He's the, he's the God of more than enough. He's the God of too much. He's the abundant God. The Bible says he's El Shaddai, which in the Hebrew means the God who is more than enough. I mean, how much sky do we really need? How many trees do we really need? How many stars do we really need? God doesn't think small and neither should we. God doesn't think in terms of limitation. He's way too big for that. Neither should we. My God shall supply with abundance all the needs that you have so that you can in turn become a supplier to somebody else. We're blessed to be a blessing. Will you stand up to your feet this morning? We hope that this message inspired you and filled your heart with faith. If you would like to visit our church, check out www.highcountrychristian.com for service times and location information. Thanks again for listening to this audio presentation from High Country Christian Church, where Jesus loves you, we love you, and your life counts.